Dear listeners, welcome to Alpha Bonus Bonus, our regular episode in which we deal with your questions and comments. This is Bunga Cats, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. And uh, here, on fait le bunga bunga, n'est-ce pas? George? Yeah, the new theme tune, it's got everybody talking. I like the old one as well. Um, but I, you know, I, I think you're the most Euro trash amongst us, Alex, so it, it probably um, resonates with you the most. Probably, yeah, probably. they're an American band, but um, it is a great something. A fake, a fake French, a fake French band. Um, but anyway, yeah, a song. The term is, exactly. I think the term is faux French, Alex. Actually, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want to give them the credit of even using a French word to describe their fakeness. Um, but anyway, no, great song, um, and uh, we're we're happy to have it. And I think it, I think it works. Um, we we I guess we should set a, an objective that we discuss every single place in the world mentioned in that song. Um, that should be our goal. Yeah, some of them would be tricky, but uh, we can do our best. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the idea of objective setting. It sounds like uh, we then have to self-evaluate how we've progressed against our objectives in this in this calendar year or whatever. I just um, don't like the sound of that. You've been, uh, you've been like uh, bureaucracy poisoned, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, for, for a long, long time. Okay, um, so um, we are going to discuss your questions, and we're going to start um, back to front from the last Alpha Bonus Bonus, which was in November, relatively recent, episode 302. Um, so firstly, Elias Braun um, makes some comments with regard to uh, leaving the EU and other aspects of European politics, Ukraine and Germany and so on. Um, so let me just go through this. Um Addressed to Phil, um, I think where we differ is that I don't really believe in the political feasibility of what you propose, um, that is to say, Italy leaving the EU. You're right that my argument does imply that an Italian exit would destroy the EU's foundations and create a real political opportunity. But I don't believe that a successful political movement advocating that is possible in Italy, and much less so in France or Germany. That is why the left is failing or disappearing everywhere in the EU. You can't be radical without being against it, but you can't win if you are. And much as I would like to imagine there's a boulevard open for popular anti-EU movement, as you were saying last episode, I don't see it, although I admit to not having any better solutions. Similarly, I don't think it's possible for the Ukrainian leadership, even if they wanted to, to pursue the strategy you propose, um, and Phil will have to clarify what that strategy was. Yeah, so it was my suggestion was as part of the, um, as part of Ukraine kind of carving out greater political independence as part of the condition of its of its war, it would be better to pivot towards um, guerrilla warfare in the occupied eastern territories rather than the full frontal assaults, which are much better for um, and lead to well better for NATO planners and also lead to dependence on NATO countries. Right. So um, continuing uh, Elias's comment, um, they wouldn't be able to pursue the strategy that Phil proposes, given it would imply much greater loss of territory and a Russian occupation with no end in sight. As a smaller nation at war, you'll always take the weapons, even if you lose some independence, since the only other option appears to be losing all of it. I do agree on what you said about its failures between 2014 and 2022, though. 
And then finally, on German monarchism, um, which we uh, made reference to the fact that support for um, a return of the German monarchy has risen in, in Germany, is definitely an expression of repressed nationalism, says Elias. But then again, support for restoration has been fluctuating between 10 to 20% for decades in France, and nothing's ever come of it. Um, well, Phil, so th this was addressed at you, so why don't you, why don't you respond firstly on Italy exit? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Elias kind of articulates the problem, right, but also makes it entirely um, self-fulfilling. As long as there is, you know, as long as it seems an impossible task, it will be an impossible task. And I think the fact remains that the European Union is more fragile than it appears. The cost of leaving it, especially for those states in the Eurozone, you know, are significant. I mean, um, and, you know, the process of Britain withdrawing from the EU um, was, uh, you know, difficult and is still, you know, difficult today. And that's without withdrawing from the Eurozone, that's just the EU. But nonetheless, I think there's no, there is no way except, um, you know, the except restoring national popular sovereignty in the member states of the EU, if there is to be any possibility for the revival of meaningful democratic mass politics um, in um, in Europe. There's no way around that. On the question of um on the question of Ukraine, um I'd say, you know, um I'd still stick by what I said, uh, that the, you know, as far as the, there is no end in sight to the Russian occupation at the moment, right? I think the only way the Russian occupation will end is if there is regime, you know, there's a change of government, a change of regime in Russia. And that is something which um is a much more difficult proposition for Western states, I think, than perhaps for Ukraine. So it doesn't seem to me that the, you know, that there is a prospect of um, re Ukraine recuperating all that territories. So that leaves the question still open as to what the most appropriate strategy is to maintain Ukraine's independence. And it seems to me that in terms of maintaining long-term costs for Russian occupation, um, a guerrilla war in the east. Um, through which also Ukraine um, makes a political kind of uh, pitch to Russian-speaking minorities, Russophone minorities in eastern Ukraine, it seems to me a much better strategy. But I don't, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too hung up on questions of what is most kind of militarily appropriate, give you know, for Ukraine, given I'm not Ukrainian, I'm not in Ukraine, um, but rather to focus on what seems to me to be entailed by a logic of political independence. So can, um, let me just jump in because I, I I'm to kind of put the question to you because I don't really have an answer. But doesn't all this imply then that if you the Ukrainian leadership is um, wedded to NATO and it's going to want the arms shipments and it's going to you know want to be enmeshed in that whole approach? Why do we care about Ukrainian independence? Um, you know why why is that why is that of interest we... us? Why politically would we support that and not, for example, dedicate? efforts instead and or and you know the political the line the political line then being opposition to further nato involvement and you know kind of forget ukraine um you could go that line but that would be to dictate you know to suggest what nato should do would be to accept nato you know as a as a legitimate actor no no but i'm and... saying nato do nothing like get get out nato 
right? You know, so so if you're in if you're in Britain, if you're in the U.S., if you're in any kind of NATO member country, that uh, you know the that's political line said, should though. be up. Yeah, but that's what yeah. I said, right? So to say NATO shouldn't be in Ukraine is to nonetheless still kind of reinforce NATO as an actor in Europe, right? Where my line is that we should, I mean, Britain, and I think it would be again the similar logic to withdrawal as from the European Union. We NATO should be disbanded. So I don't want to me. I don't think it's coherent to make a political argument in terms of what NATO should do, given the fact that it is um, so complicit in you know laying the foundations for the war in the first place, but is also you know entirely redundant. It doesn't seem to me to be meaningful a meaningful way to preserve the independence of its um, member states. No, no, fine. I, I mean, I, I share the opposition to NATO, so you know, but these things aren't mutually exclusive. It's abolish NATO disband nato and nato should get out and nato power should not be involved that, leaves, in. that still leaves the question then of how you know what is kind of what is what does the politics of ukrainian independence look like so i'm trying to shift you know i'm not i don't want to get stuck it seems to me my main point was right that there are military options for ukraine that don't that allow it to um fight for its independence without being dependent on nato or the west and there is a politics that comes with that, which doesn't require them to integrate into NATO and Atlanticist structures. Mm. I mean, I guess so the interesting thing then would be know. would be would be to know whether there is the basis for that for the base for that politics within Ukraine. Because if there isn't, um, then it then you're then it it seems kind of utopian. You know, you're suggesting a kind of uh, Ukrainian guerrilla struggle and like something that no one might be interested in. Um, well, I mean, it's uh, not to say, you know, I'm not suggesting guerrilla struggle is somehow easier than what they're doing at the moment. I'm saying it would, you know, potentially be more consistent with the politics of independence um, and also perhaps, you know, less costly in terms of um, the suffering that Ukraine is enduring at the moment. Insofar as there's a constituency for it, I mean, it seems to me there's plenty of signs that there is multiple factions within the Ukrainian state and there are, you know, there are people who are dissatisfied with um, the strategy of the Zelensky government, what the Zelensky government has compromised for. Um, and indeed, you know, I mean, I think the point is these things are biddable, right? Insofar as you can make the case that what is what would um, stand Ukraine, you know, I think it's built into the logic of what does Ukrainian independence look like, given the position the country occupies geographically, and also its makeup, its internal kind of, you know, its internal um, mix of people, right? And in that context, it seems to me that non-alignment and independence rather than becoming a member state of NATO and the EU is a much better way to preserve Ukrainian independence in the long run. And so military strategy should be tailored around that policy. That doesn't mean, you know, um, that it wouldn't require kind of rolling back the Russian front line. I'm sure it would. But I am convinced, you know, that if if you know if Clausewitz is right that war follows politics, then a different kind of politics that was more consistent with Ukrainian independence would also lead to a different kind of military strategy. I don't want to get too hung up, you know, on kind of what it looks like on the map, but that was the main point I was trying to put across. George, um, anything to add on on any of these points? I guess just to reinforce, I think Phil's right about <clears throat> the kind of self-fulfilling nature of of maybe some of the things that Elias Braun was saying around kind of anti like anti-EU popular movement. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, if you can believe it, then you can 
um what is it if you can see it then you can you can do it if you believe it there's nothing to it so you need to um that's a a, a famous phrase i believe i can't remember which political strategist came up with that but there is a there i mean there is a sense of like yeah if in unless you start from the premise that this is possible then it's going to be an extremely pessimistic approach if you if you do accept that <clears throat> destroying the eu's destroying the eu is a, is a precondition of meaningful um democratic politics which i think if you accept member state theory you probably you probably would be drawn in this direction so i guess my my counsel to elias is is to is to dream and then see what's possible yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I, I agree with that. In insofar as the condition of you know left parties don't win if they support EU exit, yes, that's fine. Um, but I think you have to prepare for the for the possibility or the moment at which it does yeah. perhaps become possible. Um, I guess it's more it's it's important maybe to widen the time horizon to to take the comment a bit more seriously. That if you think this transition from nation states to member states and this kind of whole hollowing out of politics and movement to to post politics was essentially like the work of a generation. Um, then the the movement back to any anything that's after it might also be the work of you know it might take twenty years. So I think it's a case of of building you know if you're serious about it, building those foundations and making those arguments and all that sort of thing over quite a long period of time. So yeah, I'm not I'm not saying it's it's easy, but I'm I'm being really cliched, but like nothing you know there is no royal road to anywhere worth going i'm in an, i'm in a kind of end yeah, of year mood <laughs> clearly try <laughs> um, cliches just, just one um, thing quickly on on german uh monarchism as an expression of repressed nationalism i mean i read a, i read a piece this morning by jonathan liu on the german national team which i found um actually surprisingly interesting because it discussed how frustration with the national team and their performance is being parlayed through a um a sense of lack of german identity a, la a loss of sense of who we are um and in football terms specifically kind of the the keystones of of the german national teams being you know kind of t uh, team spirit, fighting for each other, not necessarily playing beautiful football, but having kind of strong muscular um, players, uh, especially a, a, a classic number nine um, that, you know, Germany have obviously been lacking at, at this World Cup. Um, and that how much of these kind of um, sociocultural anxieties about decline have been, you know, kind of touched on um yeah, or kind of broken into the 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 football question. Now it'd be tried to just reduce mm. it to the kind of the football thing, um, but it does seem to be, you know, um, a, a process which is accelerated by the fact that the end of the end of history has arrived in Germany. Um, you know, and we we've, we've discussed Germany. I remember you know years ago going well, it's kind of an exception because it's just still in that sort of bubble and that no longer um seems to be the case and particular and the german case is particularly interesting um in the sense you know that kind of economic um decline or you know the, at least the sort of the challenges faced by germany um and and it's um the decline it will see ends up um fostering these culturalist claims in the absence of any genuine politics, which is something that we've seen mm. across the Western world. Um, and so it's interesting that this now gets phrased as like, oh, we don't know who we are as Germans. And of course, for Germany, that's a particularly difficult question because, you know, what is being German? Well, it's like we did the Holocaust and we feel guilty about that. So, um, and therefore we're European, but you can only be 
pro-German. You know, you can only be a German nationalist if you're pro-European. And anyway, all these complications, which we've discussed um, a number of times in the past. But I, I thought that was maybe some interesting context to place this question of rising monarchism, um, supposedly, um, in, the, in that yeah. context. I wonder how many of the monarchists... Uh... Uh, like what just want germany to have a you know masculine center forward and that's the way that they want them to play football i think <laughs> there probably i think there probably is a connection um but yeah germany no longer called the manschaft they they changed their name they thought it was too um too arrogant and too um well that was that was a recent invention though because it was always the nationalmannschaft and then they reduced the the the, the 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 german fa reduced it to the die Mannschaft, and then now they've been that again so yeah um but i just think it's it's a kind of amusing name for a <clears throat> for a team in the context of like a a, a search for a masculine a, a, i think um a, a thrusting center forward as as someone on this podcast might <laughs> might describe um we, we are discussing this um just just a, a few hours before germany plays and may yet go out in the group stage so um just for for those who are following yeah. um for for those yeah. who practice the the, glo- the true global religion um just a little heads up so um, Phil, what, what what's your opinion on all of this? Because um, we know that you're a keen a keen follower of uh, association football or soccer, as some people call it. So um, yeah, what what's your take on all of this? Well, my take is if you have like a thrusting forward centre and a good like attack line and some good strikers to thrust into, you know, kind of the defensive positions of the other team, I think that kind of strategy is most likely to work. The drive through the frothy, the frothy defense of uh, some effete Costa Ricans, um, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, no, I think um, I think that <clears throat> you often do have um, kind of sociological analyses. I remember in the in the for the twenty ten World Cup, there was a uh, it was kind of interesting. There was a book of like writers from all the, the countries that were in the World Cup writing about like to what extent is the or in what ways is is the team an, an expression of national culture or like the, the kind of the sociological reality i can't remember any of the oh no there was one about the the dutch because they let's let's see if, if you guys think this is plausible or if listeners think this is plausible like <clears throat> because the the dutch uh nation is built on these kind of big flat uh plains which have been reclaimed from the sea the dutch team is very um uh, following on from the 70s and the invention of total football is all about kind of using space and kind of like inventing space and creating areas and you know making the pitch as big as possible when you have the ball as small as possible when you don't have the ball and so it's uh dutch football is about um yeah about kind of architectural space and and dimensions and all that sort of thing i don't know if it's um mm-hmm actually true or plausible but it's kind of you know a good thing to read while you're waiting for the matches i'm I'm always a little bit it's tempting because it's kind of sexy but also probably quite stupid by which i mean you know psychogeography in that whole field but you know the dutch also lack a a kind of big masculine center forward but uh famously do have a lot of dykes so uh... oh my goodness um Anyway, so let's move next, on. What's the yeah. next question? <laughs> uh, John O'Rourdon, in reference to Alex Gurovich and the episode we did with him on shared labor socialism, communist freedom isn't the end of labor or even a minimization of it. It's the end of alienated labor. I interpret that as a conscious collective decision making about what labor must be done, like George said. 
kind of disagree, though, with Phil when he says that it's not so much about developing the productive forces, because developing the productive forces makes all the rest much easier and possible in the first place. Um, yeah, this is actually a, a, a good point, because I... I um, well, yeah, I, I also, when we when we're discussing that, actually wanted to delve more deeply into that question. Um, a communism doesn't seek to, you know, a communism wouldn't seek to develop the productive forces, um, suppose, you know, which was um, what the uh, USSR got hung up on and uh, China, for that matter, as well, eventually. So, um, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I suppose I've got um, quite a bit to say in response to this because I've had an exchange with Alex Gorovich over email in the meantime. And I said um, on Twitter that I um, I think I in this discussion, I think I conceded much too much, much too much um, to Alex Gorovich's um, conception of shared labor socialism. Putting that to one side for a moment, just to make the just on this point about the productive forces, um, I guess I can take the opportunity to clarify I think, I mean, I think the, um, I would reiterate what I, what I, the original claim and perhaps hopefully um, make it more clear, which is I think that the, you know, the claim, the claim for in the classical conception of Marxism was that it was only possible in advanced capitalist countries to make the transition to social, to make the transition to socialism. And I understand this not as, um, developing productive forces, but rather as reconciling the forces and relations of production. And it's that reconciliation that is the precondition for expanding the forces of production in due course um, to reach the higher communist phase once um, the socialist um, phase of, social, of development is kind of left behind. And the problem, um, you know, and it's not, a, it's, you know, not to, and you can it's difficult to understate but that marxism became a vehicle for expanding the productive forces in underdeveloped parts of the world and um you know the ideology of industrial catch-up and i think that is um you know perhaps one way to formulate the great disaster for left politics that the 20th century represents so, I mean, I'd stick by what I said. It's not to say there is no role for expanding the productive forces over the long run, but in the immediate kind of context, at least as understood by Marx originally, you know, it's not about that. Um, on this, on the broader point about um, uh, shared labor socialism, I think, I mean, you know, the pro it seems to me the problem is this, right? If I can kind of concisely summarize it as much as I can. So I agree with what John O'Rourden says. It's about... It's about ending alienated labor, though in practice, I think, um, you know, necessary, what counts as necessary, unnecessary labor would shrink in absolute aggregate social terms because we would substitute technology for labor, um, you know, in ways that would give us more leisure time. So I think even though, you know, the basic point would be the end of alienated labor, the balance of leisure time to labor time or work time would shift, I think, you know, it would have to shift in a in a socialist society if it was to deliver meaningfully on the promise of um, what industrial abundance offers. 
Yeah, not to mention because we're already well behind the curve or well below where the curve was leading under capitalism, obviously um, under the force of the, the workers' movement pushing for reduction in working hours. But you know, if you if you yeah. chart out that trend, we'd already just even un, under capitalism would be so working much back, less. Yeah, the clawback you can see very clearly. I mean, the time kind of the studies of uh, leisure time and so on they show kind of stagnation since the early nineteen eighties, which would be consistent with you know what we know about. Um, the defeat of organized labor um, at that kind of uh, world historic level in that period in the industrialized countries, where I think I I conceded too much, I think, to, to Alex Gorovich's point, because it seems to me that if you actually, you know, I think, and this is what somebody else said um, on um, that on an email that they sent to us, was that they found this um, Graham Anfinson, that he said he found this uh, very kind of arch and typically intellectual um, discussion. So, okay, so actually, now that now that you, now that you mentioned it, why, why that was one that we have on the list to discuss. Why don't you just uh, kind of summarize what that email is because it's, yeah, it's a rather long. Yeah, so one. Graham Graham makes the case that he found this kind of a very typically kind of um, detached intellectual academic conversation from somebody who's had many different kinds of um, jobs over the course of their career, including um, kind of uh, manual, you know, lots of manual jobs. And I, you know, I think he's right. I think it was a kind of a a conceited and arch discussion. And so I think if you practically think about the sheer kind of complexity of a modern division of labor and how much of that labor, complex division of labor is necessary labor, the idea of meaningfully sharing it out in a way that isn't um, tremendously distorting uh, seems to me to be, um, you know, just kind of, it, it just stretches credulity that it's meaningfully possible. Now you could, right, you can also kind of flip it the other way around, right? If you said like, well, we need, you know, in order to avoid the alienating effects of a hierarchy and a division of labor, we would need to share out some of this labor, say like, I don't know, recycling or garbage collection. I mean, hopefully a socialist society wouldn't recycle, but say, you know, kind of rubbish collection at a municipal level. And that if you shared all of that out, you know, you could kind of think of it from another point of view as um, that what you would be doing, in effect, would be um, going through a ritual of shared labor for the sake of not patronizing manual workers involved in, you know, waste management and waste distribution. Um, so, you know, it seems to me like if a socialist society did wasn't didn't had had less alienated labor, had more political and economic control for workers through worker ownership and industrial democracy, and you know um, the rest of it, whatever what have you. Then it seems to me like going through the motions of shared labor socialism would be just that. It would be a kind of redundant ritual in which we collectively participate in order to make ourselves feel better. Um, but if that society was properly functioning, it would be redundant by default. So it'd be an empty kind of exercise. So this is what I put mm. to Alex in Alex Gorovich, that is, in our email exchange. So I think I conceded much too much. I agree with Graham's criticisms. Um, I agree with what Jono Rawdon says, and I would um, you know, I would pull back from the concessions I made in the course of that discussion. So I mean, I guess the idea here is that you have 
you know, you still have a because you have a complex division of labor which would remain under socialism. That you would need that you that requires a degree of specialization, even in low wage jobs, which is a point that Graham makes in his email. Uh, low wage, excuse me, low skilled, supposedly low skilled jobs still require, you know, a degree of uh, of training and skilling and learning how to do the thing and be yeah, doing it efficiently relative, and whatever. Unskilled is a very relative term. Exactly. So with that, if so, if people are still very much, you know, do, doing their jobs and pursuing their um you know, whatever they, whatever it might be. Of course, there was those, you know, it would be a far more egalitarian society in which um, possibilities would be opened up to everybody. Um, and so people could have much more range of choice in terms of what they decide to specialize in, but people would still specialize and do certain jobs. It wouldn't just be all entirely shared out. Um, so what is left then, you know, or what makes this um, socialist, I guess, would be the question. And well, I'm, so I'm just trying. It would be I'm the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Sure, but in terms of the actual, but in terms of the production and reproduction of our material reality, um, you know, who's doing the work and what kind of work and so on, what distinguishes it from um, a capitalism, even if it's not this capitalism? Collective ownership of the means of production, politically enforced, and that yeah. would come, I think, with all sorts of new patterns of work. Greater industrial democracy, but I guess well, so. I'm I'm trying to get down I to think, the work question because I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about work um, to the extent that that division still pertains. Um, yeah. So, but I think. So, but point, let me like let I me said, just let me just work this. Let me just work this through, and then you can you can come in. Um, so it would be a reduction of working hours. You know, the amount of necessary labor time because things that could be automated would be automated in a way that they aren't today because the wages are too damn low. Um, so that doesn't force. Um, capitalists to invest in in automation. Um, so you'd have let fewer working hours. You'd have a greater choice of what you would de decide to dedicate yourself to, and you and I, I guess the work that really does get shared out is the labor of reproduction, perhaps. And this I I know Phil I think Phil disagrees with this, but this is this is where I I don't see a way around this that the la the labor of child rearing of you know caring for the you know, up upkeeping a house um, or your, where you live and all that kind of thing. Um, just the basic reproduction of daily life um, and care for the elderly and so on would be something that would be much more collectivized than it is today. And much reduced as well. But it I mean, is you collectivized can... today, right? We pay people to do it. It's, it's manual, not collective. Kind of, I mean, it's, it's not, so, it, it's, it's it is of... though, right? It's not well provisioned. You know, and it's a low wage kind of it's a low wage job that's not held in good regard and very dependent on kind of, you know, cheap migrant labor in Western countries. Um, you know, but those are, you know, the point and, is and, it is and not marketized and not marketized in, in poorer countries, right? Because it's done yeah, by but it's but that is, so you know, but the burden then is placed, you know, usually on female family members or the last kind of child to leave the household ends up being the kid that ends up looking after the parents so that they're possibilities and life chances are greatly restricted by that so i mean the point is it is socialized in developed countries but marketized right so i mean it could be you know so it could be um you know you can keep it social but strip back the parts of it that um you know that are so heavily marketized and as far as you know collectivizing childcare is concerned you know again i mean there are already kind of industrialized countries that are close to this you know, like there are some countries that do it much better than others in terms of providing um, subsidized or free childcare that allows women to 
have you know engagement with their family as well as um, maintain their careers. I mean, so it, I it, but what know, if no one? What if no one wants to do the job of child rearing of rearing other people's children? But I don't know what I don't even know what the hypothetical means because there clearly are people who do. Or and if you don't, then you pay them more to do it. I don't see what the problem is. And it doesn't get around like the it doesn't get around the issue the the point that I made that if this socialist society is functioning, right, effectively, then any kind of shared labor scheme would become a redundant ritual which everyone would see through. So that it would, you know, just it would kind of wither away effectively of its own accord. It seems to me like this shared labor thing could only really work in a society, it would only be meaningful effectively in a society that isn't actually socialist. It's the kind of, it's an organization for a, com, you know, kind of a hippie commune or a, or maybe more charitably a commune that's a, you know, a collection of people that choose to withdraw, kind of live off the grid or not participate in larger kind of, um, you know, um, social aggregates or structures. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm not convinced, but um, I don't know if we should if we should carry on with this any longer. I still think there's the question of jobs that people don't want and how that gets distributed and who gets, um, and who yeah, does that. So, but my point is right that they are they do exist, but the idea that you could share them out in a way that's kind of equitable and rational, I think, underestimates complexity of the division of labor and falls at Graham Manfinson's um, point. That the you know it's to underestimate the amount of um, skill training and embeddedness. No, but but that even so-called those skilled jobs. But but not when it comes to not necessarily when it comes to the job of you know just social reproduction, child rearing, caring for the elderly, because that is never that's never been a, a skill that is requires any kind of like formal training, and certainly. Um, was always something that people just pick up and do naturally, that they're socialized into doing. And so that could be, one could be collectively socialized into doing that sort of work as part of the um, collective taking of responsibility for the reproduction of society that we all do. But instead of doing it within, um, you know, the kind of nuclear family unit, it's done on a, on a much, on a, kind of uh wider basis right that so that those kinds of uh, yeah, bonds we and intimacy are, are more shared we have daycare right it's too expensive and the schools are crap um you know so but i mean but those are already those are already the elements of the nuclear family in the sense of this kind of self-sufficient um production unit which imprisons its members um you know that kind of artifact of feminist polemicizing it doesn't exist in the industrialized world you know so I think it's but it, just but it's but it's but, it's, but, they, but they, they've been replaced by relationships which are fully marketized and they're therefore very unequal because they don't have access to it. I'm not why why would you want a socialist version of that? I guess that's the that's the question. But what uh, well, no, it would, you would want, it would you would be... want socialized services that are better. I mean that's the point, right? Or at least services that are better, which would be better by being socialized. And also I think they would be different because you would you would begin to identify the areas of of collective life that that stand out as problems for for like for the free association of 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 people or workers or whatever. I basically what I'm trying to say is that like the surely the situation would change quite quickly. So you'd have, I would hope, and this is drawing on um, some of our discussions about AI and all this sort of thing, which has clearly been in my head. You would have the entire kind of ability to. To kind of develop technology, um, prioritize correctly. I.e., what are the problems that society faces? Not the pseudo problems or the pseudo 
problems with their pseudo solutions. Um, and then this, you know, I think this does potentially not lead to these jobs being abolished, but you can change the, you can change the way you live in order to create new problems and to, you know, to, to make these problems less arduous or I don't know, to, to just change them over the course of you know, a few But, but I mean, to be concrete about it, like basically farming out the care for granny to someone who's paid to do it, I would see that as of a, you know, a, a reflection of capitalist alienation and alienation from one another, um, which of course gets uh, either hived off onto um you know for example as phil said the youngest uh member of the family to take care of the elderly um and it's in a position and restricts their freedom or is fully marketized and you pay, and you pay a carer to come in um i would see you know i would imagine that the latter socialist is society a social okay but it's marketized and so the the point is is that there's a degree of there's a degree of alienation there that would be overcome under socialism in which we would collectively take care of one another not um not for example put put your grandmother in care of a stranger you know that it would be done why wouldn't uh, you put her in care of a stranger like well, my because grandmother that's not very, because, that's not very, my grandmother's that's not very nice. carer, because my grandmother liked her carer so much we invited the carer to the funeral my grandmother was very close to her carer she was a stranger to what i mean you know i met her and i knew about her from what my grandmother said but i mean she wasn't a member of the family i don't see you know that um i don't see what is i think what you're saying, Ali, you're, I think you're ricocheting between two different things and you're mixing them up in the process, Alex. Mm, I, I don't really see what those are, but I don't know. Maybe we should move on because um, the race will be here. We'll be here all day and we have other um well, I mean, we should with. maybe get Alex Gorovich. I mean, depending on how listeners feel, we can maybe get Alex Gorovich back on to concede yeah. that he was wrong and that, you know, <laughs> that was right. Because at the moment, it you're like, I've got this dossier. I've got these emails from Alex Gorovich, which prove that I'm right and he was no, wrong. I didn't say he they conceded proved. the point. You didn't well, say you said that he, it, you said that, that he conceded the point and he well, engaged no, no, no. in I said, I, autocritique. I rolled and back. He... He's, not con he's not replied to my most recent email, so I'm waiting to hear what he has to say. At the moment, okay. like this is the argument I put to him. Anyway, there's, 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 there's two different expletive-ridden uh, rant. It was an expletive and it wasn't a rant. Just to be clear, there's two different discussions here, though, anyway. One about specialization in things which are part of the formal economy. Um, and then there is in, in terms of production. And then there's a question about reproduction, um, which are kind of slightly separate. But anyway, let's let's move on. Um, episode 303 and 304, French Forever War, the interview Phil did with Yvonne Guichawa, um, which I've managed to probably mispronounce again. Um, this was actually uh, quite popular, and Abra K commented, this was very good, and this is why I subscribe. More like this, please. Um, yeah, absolutely. We will uh, Yeah, definitely. We'll get more. We'll get more. Um, we'll get more kind of interviews with um, with people. And I have to say, you know, I kind of I learned a lot. Um which was very useful to have uh, Yvonne on, you know, um, in terms of kind of breaking down the basics of what is, uh, you know, fantastically kind of complex conflict and region. Yeah. Um, John Simon Jones says, really interesting to hear Yvonne's point about the French pride in being suited to military activity in the Sahel due to past experience of desert warfare. I remember similar from some UK commentators in the early days of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where the argument was that British involvement in Iraq was likely to benefit from experience of urban conflict in Northern Ireland. 
Uh, Phil, any comment on that quickly? No. Um, okay, so we'll move on. Um, episode 305, the most recent one, um, Techno Feudal Unreason. Eli comments that uh, is the question of the centrality of primitive accumulation one of whether surplus value really fuels capitalism? That is, if we take primitive accumulation to be central, do we then have to say that capitalism requires ongoing dispossession as a sort of fuel, whereas if we consider it as a single initial event that kicks off capitalism, capitalism fuels itself with the extraction of surplus value through exploitation? I hope that made sense uh, to, to listeners because um, it's a... I guess it's, it's tricky maybe just to hear that and, and um, understand it, but we'll try to uh, kind of pull that apart when we discuss it in just a second. Um, Eli continues, seems like part of the distinction is moralized, but also a desire to avoid the transformation question and the details of demonstrating exploitation in econometric terms. Um, lots of big words there, but... Um, um, yeah, I think Eli's right. I think, I mean, you know, it is like, it is a question essentially of the centrality of surplus value. So those... Um, in the Harveyite vein, who maintain that um, primitive accumulation or accumulation by dispossession is an ongoing um, feature of capitalism rather than something which is kind of proto or pre-capitalist, strictly speaking, um, you know, that they, of necessity, the logic of that claim downplays the significance of surplus value and exploitation. And it will tend to focus away from, you know, kind of uh, the questions of industrial labor, the role of the middle classes, um, the service sector versus the manufacturing sector in developed economies. And it will tend towards more, you know, kind of, as we discussed, it will tend towards more kind of marginalized and peripheral um, and more visibly kind of um, oppressed and burdened social groups, you know, such as indigenous yeah, like explicit, in explicit America. violence in many cases, rather yeah, than the suffer, kind of legalized forms of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That suffer horrendously at the, you know, hands of um, private groups or paramilitaries or, you know, don't enjoy the kind of legal protections of the state as, um, as the worker would as a bourgeois citizen, you know, in industrialized um, states. So it does become, it's, you know, it's kind of an easy, it's not that it's intentionally taken, but it becomes a path, you know, which with much, with far less resistance in terms of um, discussing modern day capitalism, um, particularly for, you know, particularly for Western academics. So we're always but, happier to discuss things that are far away from home. But right? there is there is there is a, a kind of um, further question, though, because the that there could be a case made that dispossession, um, you know, purely on a kind of analytic terms and, and shying away from the the appeal and the call of the strongly charged moralized claim um, that, um, you know, the kind of uh, dispossession advocates um, have or, 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 you know, try to use, which is j just simply that declining productivity, right? So that uh, de declining improvement in productivity means that um, you're not increasing the amount of relative surplus value extracted and therefore you depend increasingly on these moments of dispossession of plunder and so on to um re-kickstart the accumulation process um and that it reappears I more often i i, I mean I'm, i think I the first part just... is right i don't know that the second you know i think i mean in that situation you probably do have you know there'll be more kind of um There'll be more kind of struggle over social surplus, I suppose, which I guess, you know, you can maybe see um, the consequence of that with the um, kind of uh, 
creeping upwards of labor militancy in the Western world. Um, but also, I think it becomes more like, you know, it be- would become more like um, shakedown politics, you know, um, kind of those kind of struggles will become more shakedown. It won't become it's not dispossession exactly, but it becomes a kind of, um, you know, kind of a politics of, uh, of rackets and the politics of shakedown. Well, but I, I think when so, you know, the the question about primitive accumulation or, you know, dispossession, accumulation through dispossession doesn't necessarily mean to need to be kind of land grabs in you know sub-saharan africa with the use of paramilitaries or whatever right it can be um much more immaterial digital postmodern, whatever yeah um, i don't and- know people like talking those terms but i don't really you know i don't really know what it what that means practically it seems to me it's kind of waving it's kind of nick cernicek waving his hands in the air woo woo something digital well, no, 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 like... but I, but but quite specifically, the way that we have right now the commodification, increasing commodification of areas of life that um, were previously not inscribed, you know, involved at all in market exchange, right? So not just kind of education, it's obviously, what? but um, I don't know, whatever the buying and selling of friendship, for example, and creating a market in friendship. Nobody does that. Uh, okay, like but that you know, nobody, it doesn't. No, but okay, exist. but nobody okay, but... buys friendship by. By by listening to people that they don't know talk in is their not, but anyway, I can't think. You know what I mean? But you know what I'm getting at? You know what I'm getting at? I don't. I literally don't. It is not like you know, kind of it's... all new. These new companies are finding new avenues of profitability that are going to make the well, the extraction of data, the extraction of data, right? That is that is a an, a, a, an example of something that that you're creating a commodity out of something that is just what you just your kind of day-to-day activity whether it's you know digital or or in real life right which then gets kind of bought and sold and 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 used no but um, that isn't like you know that is part of the way in which the you know kind of digital economy functions it's not like it's something which we didn't do before right it's part and parcel of how digital kind of society digital capitalism has developed so it's not something which is, um, you know, introduced into this pristine um, pre-market form of life. But, who's has, but no one says anything pre-market. As... No one says anything about pre-market. I mean, I, that is the you claim seem to be, of accumulation be... by dispossession. I sent you a meme the other day about people are always having an argument with someone else, you know, and most disagreements. And this seems to be one of those. You don't. That you is don't the like, logic of accumulation you don't like by dispossession. David Harvey, you don't like the David Harveyites and you don't like the primitive and the third world is and whatever. And so you're arguing with them rather than at all engaging with what i'm saying you are so, a harvey um, and an enemy of the people i'm not <laughs> i'm explicitly not uh but anyway let, let's move on no, because okay, there's, I, there's, I, there's I another question away, which there, this, sorry there's another question this which, stuff which... about this stuff about commodification of friendship just gets my goat because you know like commodification of what i just don't see it right you want us yeah, to so... explain to you what friendship is <laughs> what you, Frank what made this point like with uber and with airbnb right so you've got kind of, um, you know, people, you kind of, um, their things become assets that weren't assets before, right? So where people live, you know, they rent it out and it becomes kind of a financial asset or people kind of use their cars as a side hustle. You work as an Uber driver as a side hustle to supplement your wage and there, then your car becomes an asset, right? Um, so, I mean, I can see that. Right, but this, you know, that's what I mean. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. I I told you I couldn't. But when you talk about uh... how areas of life are being commodified, just sounds to me like, you know, vague post structuralist hand waving. Also, it's like 
our body like our labor power is already commodified like that's pretty like a essential pretty, part of yeah, life it's a pretty intimate encroachment into kind of uh you know individuality already it's, it's really not on i mean that if you want my take it's really <laughs> not on None of this is to, I think, again, you're reacting against the tendency of people who argue those types of things to distract from exploitation, right? And and, and industry, right? Well, Fine. it's worked. What Fine. have we just been Fine. talking but, about but that's, the last but five that's, minutes? But that's them. But that doesn't, mean that, that doesn't mean that the claim in and of itself is wrong. You just dislike the politics that those people have, but they can be. But the it can no, be separated I, from the from the analytical point, which and is. Now you're doing what you accuse me of. Right. You're arguing with somebody else. I'm saying that I don't see evidence for the claim. Right. The accumulation by dispossession seems to me to rely on the idea that there is something which is outside the market, which is brought into the market. Right. And so and it doesn't seem to me that there's evidence of that of that is the way that capitalism is functioning. You know, that there's some digital kind of pasture which belongs to everyone that is being annexed by evil corporations or something. I don't really see that because it was always bound up with the development of you know large internet corporations and businesses so i don't see kind of the fact at work that's what i'm saying right uh, let's move on because there's another question which is um very much along this line um in response to that same episode blake says i think the current evolution of capitalism is not so much the appearance of symptoms of the periphery within the core as much as the core and periphery regions being redrawn in a way that does not correspond as cleanly to physical geography as was the case in the past. So you have small clusters of sunbelts, rust belts, and tax havens within nations as opposed to unequal exchange between them. Everywhere uh, is a core and everywhere is a periphery. The, I mean, that, the peripheralization I mean, of the core. I mean, there is something in that, right? That the as the nation state m maybe decreases in... Um, centrality as a political unit, you can have it increasingly, um, you know, stark inequalities within nations, increasingly the kind of um, left behind regions, as you would put it in the UK. And, and those kind of dynamics can, you know, because they could. No, but, um, but, 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 but it doesn't make it quite periphery because you don't have, you don't have, for example, London exporting capital to Sunderland. Like, in fact, that's very much not what's happening. Whereas, that is what happens when you know London goes and um, you know invests capital uh, in Egypt, right? Yeah, but I but as I was yeah, but as I was going to say, I don't think the 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 notions of core and periphery are, are ones which I think kind of struggle with sometimes anyway, just in terms of how um, like what what is it that defines the periphery beyond its kind of geographical distance from um yeah, be more from the from the center and it'll be more like, rural it'll be more extractive industries you know this is these, typically the thing but these these things are bit these kind of distances and and um both physical and in terms of time are, ju are just being contracted um and they have been for you know for at least 150 years at increasingly rapid rate so the may i guess maybe what i'm saying is that if there is a distinction between the core and the periphery it seems like they're they're coming closer together anyway that's the general movement of of um, capitalism producing a world culture and a world market anyway so the terms seem to have less um i don't know just seem less useful than they were than they would have been there are sharper um so i mean you know there are greater kind of regional inequalities within industrialized states that's true 
and we've spoken you know we've spoken about it quite a bit um we've spoken about britain about kind of the regional inequalities that underpin the brexit vote we spoke about it with um Guy's work when we talked about his book um in france about the new what he calls the new citadels we talked about with michael lind in america and so on um I guess my only thing with Blake is, or with Blake's comment is, I don't know that it really try, you know, kind of carries so well beyond the states, you know, because the state is the play, the states is the place because it's so large and also federal. You mean the that USA? It has right? these, sorry. When you say the states, the, you mean the, the US? I mean the United States of America, yeah, not the United States of Brazil. No, um, you no, because you said the states. I thought you might have been talking about states in general. No, yeah, sorry, the US. So where you've got sun belts and rust belts and kind of, you know, states, I suppose, which you could say act as tax havens. I'm not sure you quite see such extreme effects within other countries. You know, I can't really think of, um, I can't really think of similar kind of cases. You have rust belts in industrialized countries like France, Germany, and England, Britain, I should say, because it's Scotland as well and Wales, but you don't get really, I don't know, you get sun belts. You know, you get kind of regions like, you know, would-be city-states like London, but it's not really a sunbelt the way you've got a sunbelt in the US. Um, and tax havens, you know, you, I guess you get kind of the Isle of Man and the Isle of Jersey as old-fashioned tax havens within the UK, but those have been choked off pretty much, is my understanding. The tax havens have been clamped down on in recent times, so I'm not sure that effect is at work either. No, and I, I mean, just, I think corn periphery, you know, still still matter my point um in making in our in making this argument in reference to the sort of neo-feudal thesis is more just that the conditions some of the conditions of the periphery um are increasingly present in the core but that doesn't mean that they're that those that kind of uh relationship is now kind of redundant um so it's and i and i think the reason for that is to do with capitalist stagnation and that so the, so that um you know that the in a, the kind of increasingly um unformalized workforce right and the precaritization is something that happens now in the core where for the greater part of the 20th century that wasn't the case the workforce was becoming increasingly formalized and that's why the core looks more like the periphery but it doesn't mean that corn periphery now um don't matter anymore i think All right. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you once again, as always, for all your questions and comments. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this at times slightly cantankerous discussion, especially as we went on. So we're going to end this here. Um, but we will be back with another Alpha Bonus bonus at uh, probably most likely at the beginning of 2023. How time flies. Anyway, we will see you again next week. Catch you later. Bye bye. Did you remember to press record? Jesus Christ. This fucking nearly gave me a heart attack. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>